questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. In 2019, a Special Futures Conference was hosted by the U.S. Air Force Space Command, which analyzed evolving conditions in space up to 2060. Eight possible negative and positive futures were identified, the optimal being a quote-unquote Star Trek future, which would involve countries with space programs forming a multinational alliance collaborating in civil, military, and commercial affairs in space. Today, the emergence of Space Force, signing of the Artemis Accord, and creation of NATO's Space Center promised to be the fulcrum for ushering in this Star Trek scenario. Such a future is not assured, however, due to the existence of uncooperative rival space programs of China and Russia. Could one or both launch a space Pearl Harbor that could devastate the entire U.S. GPS system, as predicted 20 years ago by a Blue Ribbon Space Commission? Also, there is the wild card of numerous secret space programs possessing reverse-engineered anti-gravity craft. Their existence is not officially acknowledged by major nations, but their space activities pose major challenges to a Star Trek future. Will Space Force be able to integrate the U.S.-based secret space programs, or will these and their foreign counterparts be obstacles to its future operations? The ultimate question is how the existence of extraterrestrial life will factor into the activities of Space Force and its allies' space forces. Will extraterrestrial visitors respond in a benign or a belligerent way to Space Force, setting up a multinational space coalition to militarily project humanity's presence far into our solar system and beyond? How will a future Starfleet with Space Force and NATO at its core have to deal with rogue secret space programs and alien life operating throughout our solar system? The U.S. Navy's secret space program reportedly has space battle groups built with the assistance of friendly human-looking Nordic extraterrestrials. Under what conditions will the Navy surrender authority over them to continue with Space Force? Tonight's discussion will provide answers to these and many other critical questions about humanity's bold emergence as an interplanetary space power. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview, and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button, at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And tonight, a Veritas veteran returns, Dr. Michael Sala is more popularly known as a pioneer in the development of the exopolitics, the study of the main actors, institutions, and political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. He is founder of the Exopolitics Institute and the Exopolitics Journal. He is also the news anchor of exonews.tv, a popular YouTube channel. He has written many books, and tonight... We will be focusing on his latest one titled Space Force, Our Star Trek Future, which is book six of the Secret Space Program series. Dr. Michael Sala joins us directly from Hawaii. Hello, Michael, and welcome back. Aloha, Mel. Very glad to be back on your show. My pleasure. Well, Michael, you keep writing about these news and space and exopolitics, and uh, obviously we never get tired of uh, this subject. Congratulations on the new book. The first thing that jumped out when I, when the President Trump, you know, back in 2019 introduced the Space Force, was he unveiling something that had been operating under secrecy? And if so, why now? Well, that's the, the big question here, Mel. Why did he come out with his proposal for a Space Force 
back in March of 2018 when he was visiting uh, the Miramar Naval Air Station there yeah, near San Diego. And it took everyone by surprise because only a year earlier there had been a, a congressional initiative to resurrect the idea of a space corps, a, a dedicated military service uh, that would be forming itself uh, apart from the other departments and services. And uh, the White House and uh, other officials in the uh, Pentagon uh, disowned the idea. They moved away from it. They didn't support it at all. But uh, just um, really months later, in March of 2018, Trump gave this extraordinary speech supporting the creation of a space force. Now, exactly why he did that, you know, he did make it out as though it was something that he and his uh, key advisors had just bandied about, that it made it look as though it was something that was spontaneous, uh, that it was just a creation of his own um, kind of like informal think tank. But, rea but the reality is that the idea for an independent space service has been around for uh, 20 years now. Um, it actually was proposed during the Clinton administration. You know, a lot of a lot of people will be kind of surprised to hear that, that uh, actually during the Clinton administration, just at the very end, before uh, the inauguration of the incoming Bush administration, a space commission that had been convened by Congress and the uh, Clinton White House delivered its report recommending the creation of a space corps. Now, you know, at the time, you know, this this was framed in terms of um, protecting the U.S. satellite system. But you know, coming back to your question, uh, and that's something that I, I think we all need to ask: is well, what was this really just a way to? expose or bring into the open source uh, world this secret space program that has been operating behind the scenes uh, for several decades now. And so many people believe, and, and and I would be part of that group, that you know there, there's a lot more behind Space Force than just uh, President Trump uh, in one of his idiosyncratic um, you know policy initiatives. We think it was just him, but this came from before. Also, I remember how in many in May of 2001, Dr. Stephen Greer spearheaded the Disclosure Project. And of course, that's the 20th anniversary coming up soon. And shortly after, we had 9-11 and the project lost, at least from my perspective, lost its traction. But you may remember the Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who on September 10, 2001, appeared before Congress and stated the Pentagon could not account for $2.3 trillion, which if anyone with a fraction of accounting or finance experience knows, it's an impossibility. Do you think that money went to what is now the U.S. Space Force? I think part of it uh, went to the uh, secret space program that I believe Rumsfeld wanted to um, bring into the more regular appropriations process. You know, that speech by Donald Rumsfeld on uh, September 10, 2001, it's a very important speech. A lot, of, a lot of people, you know, just focus on the portion where he talks about the, you know, missing $2.1 trillion. But actually, if you listen to the whole speech, especially where he talks about uh, the Pentagon bureaucracy as the enemy, I mean, he used really stark terms saying that the Pentagon, uh, basically, the bureaucracy stifles initiatives and um, money disappears down projects that uh, never see the light of day. And so he was he was proposing major legislative reforms and included in those legislative reforms that were going to come out was the proposal for the creation of a space corps. And actually, Donald Rumsfeld chaired the Space Commission that recommended the Space Corps. That was in January of that year. That he actually, uh, you know, was he had been the chair of the of the very commission recommending the creation of Space Corps. And of course, when he became 
the Secretary of Defense, uh, people began speculating that the creation of a space corps was a done deal because uh, Rumsfeld was a big supporter. He headed the commission that recommended its creation. Uh, now he was Secretary of Defense. Uh, talking about reforming the, the the Pentagon bureaucracy and 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 making the money uh, used for projects that would actually be of benefit to the to the Pentagon, as opposed to you know disappearing into into this kind of nebulous world of uh, compartmentalized projects where a lot of the policymakers don't know what is happening. So S- September 11 actually sabotaged that effort as well. And I, you know, I do talk about that in the book. I think it was a very significant series of events there. That uh, if September 11 didn't happen, I think Space Corps would have been created, uh, you know, like at least 15 years earlier. Well, again, going back to May 2001 with the Disclosure Project, that gained a lot of attention worldwide, a lot, and it seems that. It was overshadowed by the September 11 disaster. But you mentioned the 2001 commission uh, that they warned us of a future space Pearl Harbor. And let me add something else. I believe commissions like the Warren Commission or the 2001 commission, I believe them as much as I believe that Santa Claus is real. But go ahead and tell us why. what are they saying? That can be a well, future space uh, Pearl Harbor, the possibility of an attack on U.S. space systems and by whom? Okay. Well, uh, commissions are, tip, uh, are the favorite way of the bureaucracy and policymakers to create something. So if you, if you want, for example, you know, to do something like create a new military service, um, you know, you don't just come out and say, hey, you know, this is a great idea. Let, let's, let's come out with a new military service. What you do in the, in the, um, in the national security system is that you convene a commission and, and, and you frame the commission in, in a way that, that produces the desired outcome. So in this case, you, you frame a space commission and say, well, you know, let's look, at, let's look at space. Let's look at the upcoming national security threats for space and what can we do to protect our space assets? So, you know, that's how they framed uh, the, 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 the space commission. And uh, and so the the result was as predicted. Uh, they identified that uh, there were a number of n- national security threats uh, to U.S. space assets. That they identified China as the country most likely to one day be able to launch a space pearl harbor and destroy the U.S. Uh, satellite system, the, the GPS system, which, you know, now I think I think it's 70% of all U.S. Uh, weapon systems, the smart systems, are reliant on the GPS system. So for a country like China that is catching up to the U.S., this gives them a, an incredible asymmetric means of crippling the U.S. military. If you take out, you know, using your... It's kind of like um, you know, surface missiles or your space assets. If you take out uh, the, the U.S. GPS system, you know you've 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 basically rendered seventy percent of the U.S. military uh, redundant. Uh, they they can't operate. And so the solution uh, that the Space Commission came up to this problem was the creation of a Space Corps. And of course, that would have required money being siphoned away from these compartmentalized special access programs um, and and going into the creation of this space core uh, but that but that never happened that the 911 attacks I, I think were you know part of this kind of like new world order agenda uh, to achieve multiple things but one of the, one of the goals of that uh, was to really get the American public focused on a new threat, and that would be global terrorism. And, you know, we have that incredible speech by uh, General Wesley Clark where he talked about, what was it, six or seven uh, Seven. Middle East countries that would be targeted in succession after Afghanistan, showing, proving that there truly was a New World Order agenda for the U.S. to put all its resources into – uh, you know, these the war on terror, 
And, and that would have weakened the U.S. military to the extent that one day China or Russia could launch a space Pearl Harbor and, and then the U.S. Mil military would be crippled and the, the result would be that China would become the new global hegemon. And this is something that uh, the New World Order, you know, we call them the deep state, the cabal, the Illuminati, whatever you want to call them. I think it's very clear that they want, that they are building China up to be the new global hegemon. And so to do that, I think they've setting, they've set the U.S. up, the U.S. military up uh, for a space attack so that uh, China would one day emerge uh, the dominant nation on the planet. And so that's, I think, why the idea of a space corps or a space force as a dedicated military service was basically shelved for nearly 20 years. It's very interesting because I think you're absolutely right. Not only do they try to beat us commercially, but now militarily also. But the outcome, whenever the deep state has an outcome in place, or in mind, they materialize it in their minds, but just like the war on terror was already planned. But then we had the Project for a New American Century uh, devised not too long before that. The Patriot Act was already written before that. The 2001 the Commission gave the deep state the necessary optics to rally the population behind the so-called effort. So you're saying that all these commissions are for optics so that the outcome is, is, is materialized and the population rallies behind the efforts. Oh, yeah. All these commissions definitely are designed to produce a certain outcome. I don't think any commission really is set up so that they can, you know, explore issues to um, come up with some creative solution. I think they're all set up with a predetermined agenda. Um, but, you know, there are, there are good people as well as bad people bad people in the system. And so I, I think in the case of the Space Commission, the one that recommended the creation of a space core, you know, this was a white hat initiative, I believe, uh, to to really do something to, to help the US. And, you know, Donald Rumsfeld is such a fascinating character. I mean, I always thought of him as like this uh, really dark actor. And of course, I mean, everyone knows how he was uh, you know, part of the whole war on terrorists, setting it up at the beginning. But, you know, in this early period when he was really trying to reform the Pentagon and and, and come up with um, this Space Corps and, and other innovative projects, I, I think he really was trying to promote a white hat agenda. And I, and I think that that's probably because he himself has been directly involved in the secret space programs going back to the 1970s. Um, you know, he, he, actually, he actually sat on the only uh, congressional committee uh, to, to discuss the UFO phenomenon. That happened, I think it was 1967. And uh, he was also the guy... Uh, you, you know the very famous uh, Jackie Gleason incident where uh, President Nixon took Jackie yeah. Gleason to a Homestead Air Force Base. Well, he was met by a very senior aide that, that ushered him in. Well, that was actually Donald Rumsfeld back then. Donald Rumsfeld was uh, Nixon's uh, uh, senior advisor on military affairs. I mean, he was a, a captain in the U.S. Navy Reserve. And, and he was the guy that took uh, Nixon and Gleason through all of the security apparatus to see the recovered craft that was being stored at home, Homestead. Um, and so there's many other uh, people, well, there's several other people who, who discuss uh, Rumsfeld's invo involvement in the secret space program. So I believe that one of the reasons he he was behind the creation of Space Corps was that this was something that the rank and file within the uh, within the secret space program wanted. You know, because you can imagine if 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 you if you're part of a covert space program that's secret, well, you know, it it can't appear on your military record. So it means that uh, you know your any service you do for that covert branch um, is is not acknowledged on your military record, that and that impacts your prospects of of promotion. It impacts your 
future pensions and so forth. And so this, this I think, was one of the reasons why Donald Rumsfeld was behind the creation for a space corps. Let me go. Let me go back to Jackie Gleason for a moment because that that is a story that always always comes up and is such a fascinating story. Obviously, Nixon being from your Belinda, California, and and Jackie Gleason working in Hollywood most of his life, they were friends. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Nixon didn't he drive out at one point without any security detail to pick Gleason up? so they could go and see this? Is that what happened? And did Jackie ever talk about this? I know there were friends. This is probably confidential between them, but I, I heard that he was never the same after that uh, event. Well, that's right, yes. Uh, Nixon did go out and pick up Gleason in, in his own car, and uh, Nixon ditched his security uh, detail. They had played golf earlier that day, And so, you know, after he went back to his uh, presidential compound, uh, then he went to pick up uh, Gleason in his own car, and, and then they drove over to Homestead, and they were met by Rumsfeld. Now, we know all of this uh, because, um, you know, there are three sources um, that I, I that I know that that discuss this. The, probably the most authoritative source was uh, Gleason's uh, wife at the time who, after their divorce, wrote a tell-all book where she described uh, what Gleason told her. So, so Gleason himself never went on the public record, but she described, you know, everything you, you said, that, that he was changed forever, uh, that he was just so shocked to see that all this was real. And, of course, Gleason was a big fan, uh, or a big researcher of the UFO phenomenon, and he was a big um, supporter of, of Nixon. Um, and so, you know, the the... Gleason did actually go to Homestead, according to his wife, and experience all this stuff. And also there's uh, Clark McClelland, who's another uh, important source, a former spacecraft uh, operator for NASA, and he, he said the same thing. So yeah. essentially, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, Nixon took Gleason with him to see the stuff at, uh, at Homestead And uh, Donald Rumsfeld was the point man for Nixon. Speaking of Clark McClellan, I need to check on him. We haven't spoken for a few years. We did two interviews and he was uh, pretty ill back then. I, I, I need to know that he's okay. But if we take the U.S. Space Force at face value, it is to confront the evolving technological prowess of our so-called enemies, which could take advantage of our weakness and make us vulnerable during, say, a war. But if is there something more to it than we are told? Well, yes, I think there is a lot more to Space Force. On the, on the surface, uh, Space Force was created, and its explicit goal is to protect the U.S. GPS system and, and, and that way make sure that uh, there cannot be a surprise attack that Uh, Space Force introduces whatever redundancies, whatever protective mechanisms need to be in place so that so that the GPS system is always there uh, for the U.S. military. Uh, but Space Force has much more behind it than, than just that. I, I think it has been set up as this independent space service that will form the hub of um, firstly the incorporation of the Air Force Secret Space Program and the Air Force Secret Space Program, and I think we've covered this in one of my past interviews with you, uh, has all of these advanced anti-gravity spacecraft that uh, have been secretly built and used for Air Force operations, especially special operations and for uh, reconnaissance and intelligence gathering from around the world. So that's so that so those craft have been built for some time uh, for specific purposes. But but what's happened now is that you know because China has become such a powerful country in so few years. I mean, people don't realize that China's economy now, if you use it, if you measure it in terms of uh, PPP, China's economy is already larger than the United States. If you just go on nominal 
value of um, of the US dollar, it'll only be another three or four years before China overtakes. So nevertheless, China's economy is uh, as big as or even bigger than the US economy. And, and China is is putting a lot of resources into its military, building up its military. And, and rather than um, China focusing on this kind of full spectrum dominance that the US military does, China has an asymmetric uh, approach, which they call assassin's mace. And and the the bottom line is that you know rather than spending um, you know hundreds of billions of dollars in building strategic bombers, nuclear weapons, uh, uh, fifth generation aircraft, and so forth, China recognizes that America's Achilles' heel is space. So let's build a secret space navy, so that we can take out the U.S. satellite system and take out all U.S. space assets at the drop of a hat whenever we need to, say if there was a confrontation over Taiwan. And so Space Force is being set up because now there is an understanding that China is developing a space navy covertly. And so the U.S. military has to upgrade its secret space program, which previously was just used for space reconnaissance and special operations. And so you only need a couple of squadrons to do that. But if if you're going to if you're going to pr- protect yourself from a peer adversary in space, you know, you don't need 3, 5 or 10 squadrons. You need like um, uh, 300 squadrons, 400 squadrons of anti-gravity spacecraft. So, so this is where Space Force is going, that they are going to turn it into a fully-fledged space service, just like the Air Force, which has, I think it's around 300, 350 squadrons around the world, um, that you need to do the same thing in space to be able to protect your space assets and to protect your space operations from a major peer adversary like China. Well, China has Hong Kong back since 1997, and a Taiwan conflict, in my opinion, will happen sooner rather than later, especially with a U.S. administration that seems to, I don't know, they seems to want to let it happen. Plus, they're not mentioning anything about the Uyghurs, the, the Falun Gong, and the rest of them that are currently, right as we speak, living in <laughs> concentration camps and being used for organ trafficking, but that's for a different story. Is the creation of the U.S. Space Force uh, similar to what happened with the U.S. Army? I remember listening to that that uh, radio uh, broadcast. I wasn't alive, of course, but 1947. The U.S. Army Air Force has retrieved a, a flying disc. Remember that. Do you think the U.S. Army Air Force after World War II gave the Air Force more autonomy and now is giving the Air Force Space Command or U.S. secret space program, the autonomy that it uh, deserves, and that's why it has been redesignated as a U.S. Space Force? The the history is very important here. Uh, Yes, the the U.S. Army Air Force uh, that was created around 1941 under General Hap Arnold, and it was treated as a separate uh, military service, even though nominally it was under the control of the U.S. Army. So it was only in 1947 that uh, the Army Air Force became the U.S. Air Force and and had its own separate department, so it became completely uh, independent of the of the U.S. Army. And I think that's the similar process we are going to see here with the uh, Space Force. That for now it's starting off as a autonomous military service within the uh, Air Force, the Department of the Air Force. But uh, probably within the next 10 years, by the end of this decade, I think, uh, there will be a movement to create a department of the Air Force where the Navy comes in. And the, and the Navy really is a big player in space. I mean, that is, the, that is probably one of the best-kept secrets is that the Navy really has developed uh, incredible, incredibly sophisticated deep space spacecraft uh, and you know people and I've talked about it as well 
uh, about the Solar Warden program that's operated by the Navy, and that operates in deep space. And so there was a kind of division of labor between the Air Force and the Navy when it came to developing aerospace technologies. Uh, the, the Air Force uh, took the lead in terms of uh, setting up satellites and it's, and basically protecting the satellite system and would be responsible for near earth operations kind of kind of like a glo- kind of like a space coast guard if you like that the air force took on that job um, from the very beginning but the navy always wanted to develop space carrier battle groups that was always the navy's primary interest and that and that was uh, designed for deep space operations and so that's what happened so you have this kind of division of labor when it comes to secret space programs that the air force controls all the stuff in the kind of earth moon environment uh, and the navy operates its spacecraft Kind of like in deep space, you know, beyond Mars, beyond the asteroid belt, and and even further, you know, in the Kuiper belt. So that was the the division of labor. So Space Force eventually, I think, once it becomes a, a military department, its own department, it will integrate the Navy secret space program. But this is where it kind of gets very complex because the Navy is not alone. The, the Navy is working with extraterrestrials uh, but i can talk more about that later if you like oh definitely i always remember the the words from bill cooper he obviously came from navy navy intelligence and he said that it is the navy that is in charge mostly because we think of the air force as the closest being to, to to space but it was actually the navy and i always wonder if it's because what is it? Seventy percent of our, our, our Earth is all ocean, and many parts are unexplored. And this is how they can operate completely in silence and in secrecy. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think the the Navy has a lot of advantages in setting up a secret space program as opposed to uh, another military service like the uh, Air Force. I mean, you know, as you said, the the uh, the Earth's oceans. Uh, 70% of the planet's surface. And so the Navy can do things in remote regions. You know, there, there are places like Guam or Diego Diego Garcia, which is actually a British base, right. which which is loaned or leased to the U.S. Navy. I mean, they, they've got a complete space program operating out of Diego Garcia. Um, but no one can get to Diego Garcia. Um, you, you have to be actively serving with the uh, U.S. Navy. Uh, similarly, with places like Guam, they've got uh, military facilities there, and there are other locations all over the planet, uh, you know, just using space, sorry, just using aircraft carrier battle groups. They can go anywhere on the planet, and they can have uh, full-blown diplomatic meetings with uh, extraterrestrials, or they can um, test a new craft uh, in remote regions, whereas... You know, with the Air Force, because they have to be based on land, uh, they it's much easier for people to kind of get close to Air Force bases and see what's going on. I encourage anyone who wants to learn about the history of the Diego Garcia Island to do a, do a YouTube search, and you'll be surprised. It's a very interesting history of how they convinced and relocated the inhabitants somewhere else so that the the British military that took over, and then after World War II, is it's the U.S. is leasing that island, correct? That's right. Yeah, they got the the native Chagossians uh, to leave uh, the island and paid them off, and and now the uh, U.S. Uh, Navy runs Diego Garcia, and and it it is truly a fully fledged space spaceport. Uh, operating out of there, but no one knows anything about it. I mean, it's it's like um, in the Indian Ocean, you know, thousands of miles from any 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 kind of major urban settings, and uh, they they can do anything they want there, and there's zero accountability. What about and again? I don't mean to deviate, but I'm just getting all these thoughts. Kwajalein, I've heard about that, and what about Pine Gap in Australia, in the center, that center of Australia? Yes, well, that's another major base. Uh, now, of course, because it's on land, you know, most of what's interesting is deep underground. So there's a deep underground military base there, and uh, they work uh, with extraterrestrials. 
there. I mean, there there is a it's that they are working with uh, some very powerful extraterrestrial groups there at Pine Gap, and I, I understand that it is truly one of the major uh, dumbs that the U.S. military relies on. A lot of people, Michael, think that this talk about deep underground military bases is just, uh, you know, conjecture and it's science fiction. But anyone who still has a doubt, go to my Facebook page. I posted a video that someone someone just referred me to it yesterday. And for the first time, I've heard about all these bases. I've had Dr. Richard Souter uh, here in the show, and he discussed that in detail. But I've never seen one of those highways before. And the video basically it opens a gate probably inside of a military op- military base. You know, green light comes in, and boom, the vehicle goes inside. And I would say it was going over a hundred miles an hour inside of that. And it takes minutes and minutes and minutes to get to the other side. It makes you wonder if it's true that this entire world has all these roads and highways underneath us. Right. Yeah. Well, we've had a lot of insiders come forward and say exactly that that they they were part of the uh, construction teams or they've used these deep underground military facilities, and so you've had a lot of people come forward and talk about that. And, you know, I, re- I remember, f- uh, for example, uh, Phil Schneider, uh, very right. famous um, whistleblower who came out in 1995 talking about these uh, deep underground military bases. And and he had a lot of data, a lot of evidence. He was showing people evidence and he was a civil engineer. So he was talking about, you know, his role in building these bases. So he he knew his stuff. He was he was such a threat that uh, only, only, I think, seven months after he came out, I mean, he was murdered. Right. He, uh, they made it look like a suicide, but he was murdered. Um, and so he's one, he's one of the people that talked about these. And, and Richard Sorter did – he's done a series of books on underground uh, military bases, both on land and, and on the sea. And what makes his work so important is that it's uh, fully supported by documentation. So people who say, well, you know, where's the evidence? Well, you, you just got to read uh, Richard Sorter's books uh, for the evidence. But if you want to know what's going on, then, you know, you just got to, you know, go to people like uh, Phil Schneider – uh, 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 William Cooper, uh, even uh, people like Bill, more recent people like Bill Tompkins also have talked about some of these underground facilities. And there was an attempt on on uh, Richard Souter's life a few years ago, and we lost contact. Uh, he didn't want to speak again for, I don't know what the status is for him, but when it comes to Phil Schneider, I've seen the pictures of his dead body. And for anybody to say that he committed suicide that way with those, you know, rubber hoses around his neck, the way the blood was there, he, he was definitely uh, uh, assassinated. I, I have no doubt in my mind. Exactly. Yeah. If if you if you are a whistleblower, and and you have firsthand evidence, or and 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 you and you saw things happen, and you start talking about this. Um, yeah, they they came after you. They come after you very very hard, um, and I think Phil Schneider because he was fearless. Uh, yeah, they 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 removed him. Even even Bill Cooper. I mean, he went through the same thing. I mean, right. he he took. I think he retired in 1975, and it was only uh, after 16 years that he actually. I think he came out in 1989, uh, but he was going to. He was starting to come out even earlier, and then they. Um, uh, then he was run off the road, and uh, that's when he lost. I think I think both both of his legs, um, and so that so he and he survived that. He, but uh, they did try to kill him then. So any any whistleblower, anyone with direct first hand knowledge, and and if you happen to have documentation or evidence, you have to be really really careful. Maybe not so much now. Things have evolved quite a lot. But back then, back in the '90s and even earlier, yeah, your life was definitely threatened if you if you went a bit too far. See, you're, told, you're telling me something I didn't know. I always wonder what happened to his legs. I thought it was a military combat, or but apparently, yes, you're right. It was an attempt on his life, and then it was November five, two thousand one, after he had been warning since June that the United States would be attacked and that it would be blamed 
you know, Osama bin Laden will be blamed and the towers and they're going to be using uh, airplanes as missiles. He said all that stuff even before Alex Jones even said it. And immediately, boom, after he was dead, he left a huge vacuum, a huge vacuum of, of truth seekers out there. And somebody else has that uh, audience now. Would you agree with that? Yes, no, that is that is very important history there that 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 Bill Cooper was the first guy to start talking about uh the the upcoming attacks on nine on nine eleven on the on the towers. And um he was before and he actually uh he didn't have the kind things to say about Alex Jones about Alex Jones. He he was he uh Bill Cooper definitely uh, he had very clear opinions about Alex Jones, but the, he was the one that was the first to reveal it. He he knew what was going on, and uh, and I, and I think yeah, that could well be part of the reason why they eliminated him. I think what well, was it? Just months before nine eleven. Well, actually, it was after because he uh, said that it was going to happen, and then immediately after it happened, he started talking again, saying, "You see, I told you." Okay. And on November the fifth of two thousand one, they came to his house in. Uh, uh, home in East Arizona, and uh, they shot him dead there. I mean, they said supposedly that he came out, you know, with guns, but obviously he's a military guy, and I don't think he wanted to commit uh, police suicide. But Bill Clinton, during his presidency, said the most dangerous person on radio at the time was William Cooper. He said that. And then since we're talking about 9-11, and this is 20-year anniversary coming up soon, the Lone Gunman. Remember that? That spinoff from the X-Files and had the exact scenario showing. I still have the DVD next to my bed. Sometimes I watch it just to say how did they do that. Obviously, Hollywood was just giving us a, a bit of predictive programming. The, the, the Lone Gunman, uh, are we talking about the Kennedy assassination? No, 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 no. The Lone Gunman is the spinoff from the X-Files. Did you ever watch that in May of 2001? It, they had a scenario of exactly what happened. And they were looking into it and they said, who's doing this? Well, it's not us. It's uh, it's the New World Order. They want us to get into a, a war forever. And the same scenario happened. The only difference is that they were, they, the heroes of the show were able to to do something and and uh, deviate the, the plane from crashing into the towers. Mm, right now, I hadn't seen that one. Oh, you should watch it. Now, we're again, we're entering the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I was glad to see that you included a quote from our beloved Dr. Judy Wood. She said, of course, the towers didn't burn up, nor did they slam to the ground. They turned to dust, of course, mostly, mostly, uh, the dust in mid-air, unquote. An excerpt from her seminal thesis titled, Where Did the Towers Go? Now, Dr. Wood concludes that free energy technology, Michael, was used on that day. We in our field call it mostly directed energy technology or directed energy weapons. The title of this chapter is The Empire Strikes Back, 9-11 Attacks Delay Space Force. Who do you think is in possession of that technology if indeed it's a space-based weapon? Yes, the directed energy weapons from space, uh, these are part of a secret space program controlled by the CIA and the NRO. Now, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that you know the, the military has its own secret space programs run by the Navy, run by the Air Force. They're independent. But the CIA also developed a secret space program, and it did that in conjunction with the National Reconnaissance Office. And even though the National Reconnaissance Office is um, – organizationally under the control of the Pentagon, the NRO is funded by the CIA, has always been funded by the CIA. And 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 it's and as we know, it, you know, the guy that pays the bills is the one that sets the agenda. And you know, the Pentagon does its oversight thing, uh, but the CIA was was the run was the one running uh, or directing NRO operations. And so this the CIA and the NRO have built a lot of space assets that they use for surveillance purposes, uh, but also for covert operations. And and using uh, space-based weapons uh, to do things like you know launch attacks, whether we're talking about weather attacks or whether we're talking about directed energy attacks, um, 
that is something that would be very helpful uh, for the CIA agenda. So, so the CIA and the NRO uh, is is kind of working very closely with the deep state. Uh, the way the deep state operates, as far as space operations are concerned, um, is that uh, they they do a lot of private contracting. You know, they work with the intelligence community. It's all done in a very opaque way. So no one knows where the money is going. No one knows, you know, what, what are the targets of any operation until the last minute. So it's all, it's been run like that for a long, long time because the, the way the deep state operates is that, you know, the, the people it contracts for its various operations don't know anything until the very last minute. Um, and so I think this is, that's classically how they do things. Uh, so, for example, you know the people that maybe were behind the uh, the twin towers attacks using space-based weapons. You know, they might have been told this is all part of a military exercise, and you, you got to target the the towers. This is part of the exercise. So, so the the thing that we need to do is to understand well how how did the NRO and the CIA develop a space program and and how is it set up and and how can we kind of like make it transparent and how can we make it accountable so that's what I try and do in the book is expose exactly how the CIA and the NRO set up a secret space program that could be used for these false flag events for any kind of covert rogue operations that they want and so what I discuss is this creation of this entity called the Office of Space Reconnaissance that very few people know anything about. But it is essentially uh, the CIA NRO secret space program. Now, speaking of covert and rogue operation, let me just read this so that anyone who, who wants to learn more about what I just said about the lone gunman, in the lone gunman's premiere episode, the pilot, which aired March for 2001, members of the U.S. government conspire to hijack an airliner, almost hitting the World Trade Center, and blame the act on terrorists to gain support for a new profit-making war. Sound familiar? The episode aired six months prior to the September 11 attacks. I thought that I always think that was so interesting. But I wish there came a time, Michael, when government spending became open source and transparent, and we could actually see exactly where every penny we pay goes and, and have a real say where the government spends it. But of course, we have plenty of black holes like NASA and, and others where they're telling us one thing and perhaps that money is going elsewhere. But let's not digress. If the U.S. Space Force was born out of the concerns manifested by the 2000 Commission, the 9-11 Commission, I'm sorry, why did it take so long or was it active before the public even knew about it? I think because the deep state didn't want a space force. I mean, the deep state uh, really wanted to let the U.S. spend all its resources in these useless wars against, to find terrorism so that all the money and the lifeblood would, would go into, like, hunting terrorists in these caves, in these remote caves of, of um, Pakistan and Afghanistan and all of these kind of you know these costly military interventions in uh, Iraq and other other places around the world and and that way you weaken the US militarily and you overstretch it and and in the meantime the country that you want to be your next base of operations uh, China you you facilitate its growth so you kind of like allow technologies to flow from the US to China and that's and that's been happening for a long time the deep state has allowed so much advanced technologies and blueprints uh, to go to China whether they're just kind of handed over to the Chinese you know, as, as happened during the Clinton administration or, or whether you, you have industrial espionage the Chinese um, China's PLA spying on Western corporations cyber hacking or, or whether you just have um, uh, Western companies investing in China to to make a profit that they kind of steal the the technologies they steal the patents and then they reverse engineer them themselves the, the Chinese are excellent uh, reverse uh, excellent at reverse engineering they are really good if you 
if you give them blueprints to any advanced technology, uh, the Chinese scientists are uh, excellent in being able to do that. But they're not so good in terms of uh, doing the initial R&D because that, that requires a certain degree of creativity. And creativity only flourishes in open societies. It doesn't flourish in repressive, closed societies where if you say the wrong thing, you can end up in a gulag or in some prison or, or have your organs transplanted right. to to some, you know, some, you know, Cheyenne, uh, some son's, a millionaire's son or something like that. So uh, this is what, this is what's been going on for a long, long time. So the deep state, has been siphoning all of the advanced technologies to China, allowing the Chinese military to build itself up. You know, China's navy today is bigger than the United States. That's that's that that only happened just about a year ago. And you know, ten years ago, people would have thought that would never happen. Now, China's navy is bigger than the United States navy, and it's it's uh, continuing to grow. Um, China's shipyards can build ships. Um, much more rapidly uh, than U.S. shipyards. So China's going to be building advanced uh, ships and uh, airplanes, fifth-generation, sixth-generation airplanes, as well as sixth-generation airplanes over the next decade. So that by the end of this decade, uh, China's military will be more than a match uh, for, for the U.S. military. So, so this was this was all part of the plan uh, for why Space Force had to be delayed. That they didn't want uh, the U.S. to build a very big military space presence. They, they, the deep state wanted the U.S. Uh, Air Force's space program to be small. You know, you just have you know two or three or four squadrons of anti gravity craft out there, um, and and space would be would be treated as a benign environment that and the language is important here because you know the the idea of space being a benign environment that comes from the 1967 outer space treaty where space is is basically declared to be off limits to weapons of mass destruction and uh, and military bases would not be allowed on on the moon and other planets um so space was perceived as a benign environment and so whenever people in the U.S. military or in the Air Force, said, "Well, you know, we need to start getting ready for you know China one day doing uh, a space pool hub." But they were told, "No, no, you can't talk about that. Space is a benign environment. We cannot treat it as a uh, as a war fighting domain." And in fact, there was a gag order imposed uh, by uh, the Air Force Secretary uh, or the, the Secretary of the U.S. Air Force, Heather Wilson. Uh, she imposed a gag order where all the senior Air Force generals were not allowed to talk about space as a warfighting domain. They had to just kind of talk about it in terms of, well, you know, we got to put satellites up there because we want to monitor things, and that's and and that's and that was about it. Maybe some covert operations, but you know, once the idea of space becoming a warfighting domain because of the rapid growth of China and its space assets. Then the the thinking shifts from you know two to four operational squadrons for special operations and for space reconnaissance purposes to now having like three hundred squadrons to actually fight a major peer adversary like China in a future space war. And the deep state didn't want that, so that's why they contrived nine eleven to to really. Keep the U.S. distracted. Keep the U.S. military distracted for for well over a decade, so so the U.S. could kind of get you know so that China could catch up to what the U.S. has, and now we're in the position where the U.S. has to quickly catch up to China, which is why uh, Trump, you know, the white hats in the U.S. military got Trump to say, okay, you you got to fast track Space Force. You've got to really get that up and out there. And we've got to really pour resources into that into it because China is is building up a very big space navy and we're kind of like we only have a, a couple of only a few operational squadrons out there. I have to compliment you, Michael, because you have a lot of expertise in many areas, but geopolitically you connect dots with this Exopolitical realm, which is something that not a lot of people 
can can dominate and and you have a good good solid background with this but i saw a meme the other day where it showed an incredibly modern chinese navy fleet and, and underneath it was a picture and underneath it read while we continue dividing the united states with the cancel and woke culture china is building the world's largest and most modern military are we going to be so divided michael and and connected to our gadgets that if and when china ever invited and i keep getting messages from our canadian friends they have spotted chinese troops close to to many areas of the border do you think we're going to be so distracted and and blind that if this ever happens and as you say they may have space based uh, technology that could render our gps or even our uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse bomb that one day we can wake up and would be a uh, a scenario like we saw in the tv series jericho Yes, uh, China is playing to a, a, a set of precepts that are taken straight out of Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And, and that is when you are, when you are an aspiring hegemon, uh, the, way to, the best way to undermine the ruling hegemon is to pretend to be a friend, to, to pretend to be weak and, and, and like – and at the same time, undermine your adversary at every opportunity you can. And that is what we are seeing now, that uh, China is pretending to be uh, a, a kind of weak and developing nation and um, struggling to feed all its all of its population. And at the same time, it is doing all, its, all it can to ferment division in the United States to, to weaken the US as, as much as possible. And and this is something that uh, really needs to get a lot of attention uh, because if the US continues to be divided in this way, I mean, w w one of the things, one of the precepts I, that I appreciated from my studies of Mahatma Gandhi was that, you know, Gandhi said, conflict is inevitable, violence isn't. So, you know, in the United States right now, you, you're gonna, you, you have conflict, no doubt about it. You have, you know, left and right wings look at things very, very different. But when it comes to violence, uh, you know, that's where the, the, the red line has to be drawn. And what we're seeing now in the United States is that increasingly, uh, you know, we are witnessing violence being promoted uh, to resolve political issues that, you know, on the left, you, you have a lot of violence being used. And, and, and that's a concern because if it's left unchecked, the, the U.S. could very easily descend into kind of like major urban warfare where you have uh, very radical leftist groups civil taking war. on patriots. Yeah, this could turn into a civil war. That's, I think, exactly what the deep state wants to do, has been trying to do for some time. Now, thankfully, uh, pe the people working for the uh, – uh, that are leading the kind of patriots and, and the white hats in the military, that they understand this. They say, look, stand down. We know you're well armed. We know you can take on, you know, these radical Antifa goons doing all this violent stuff. We know you can do that, but stand down. Um, we, we've got things under control, and that's and I think that is is the message that's been going out now for a few years. And um, you know, so the the patriot community is has become very patient. They understand that violence is not the answer. That that violence is exactly what the deep state wants. That this that this kind of like logjam that we're witnessing now in the United States is going to be resolved politically um, in. It, it, that the system is is going to work, even though at the moment, you know, a lot of people are very upset because you know they, they look at the 2020 election and what what happened, and and look at uh, you know Joe Biden as the commander in theft. That, uh, that <laughs> I like that. That, <laughs> that uh, this is that this is something that uh, a, a lot of people say. Well, when when's this going to be overturned? Well, um, the, the U.S. military, I think that they understand what happened during the election, but they're standing down because they want the political system to work it out themselves. And so so I think that's what's happening right there in your state. Uh, what's happening now in Maricopa, that 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 could well be uh, the, the start of this big turnaround. But but nevertheless, uh, 
you know, there, there is an attempt to foment civil war in the United States. The deep state is desperately trying to do that. The, the White Hats are, are, you know, calming things down. They're calming people down, saying, don't worry, hang on, it'll it'll be okay, things will, will resolve. And because the big beneficiary of a civil war in the United States would be China because they, they that would enable them to fast-track their path to becoming the world's global hegemon. By the way, I love that uh, commander in theft. Never heard that before. That was great. But, you know, I don't mean to be political at all, but I just want truth. And uh, when I see people saying, look at China, they have two what is it, 2,185,000 estimated active military, uh, basically uh, soldiers. But we have about 100 million plus gun owners in the United States. Unless they do, as you say, an asymmetrical war, or they use technology to completely render us technologically done. But then again, we go back to our basic instincts. If we have 100 million plus gun owners, like the Japanese a general told, uh, or admiral, or that told uh, the Emperor Hirohito, if we even try that, there will be, what did he say? There will be one American behind every bush. Remember that? Right, yes, exactly. But, you know, in, in those days, uh, you know, it would have been very difficult for a country like Japan to uh, establish a foothold in the United States just because. You know, Americans are so well armed. You know, today though, you know, we, we live in a different, a different world. I mean, um, you know, someone can be well armed, can be part of a militia, but I mean, you're, you're talking about countries that have you know, not just an overwhelming superiority in air power, but also space power. I mean, you you got laser precision laser weapons now. Uh, that can be uh, deployed from space. I mean, you know, you look look at Google. I mean, Google can can pinpoint your home. It can pinpoint, uh, you know, your 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 environment around you. So imagine you have space based weapons. You're a country like China with space based weapons, and uh, um, you know, you you want to target a country like the United States. I mean, if you if you invaded the United States and you have overwhelming air power and you have space dominance. Um, it, it would be horrible. I mean, uh, people would have to live underground to be able to survive the uh, the space attacks uh, because we've got directed energy weapons. Uh, you know, now now you've got all these five G technologies that can be weaponized. Uh, the, you know, there's there's a lot of advanced electromagnetic technologies that can be used to target people. So we we definitely don't want to get into the position where um, uh, China defeats the U.S. military. I, I think our biggest protection from uh, Chinese hegemony and all that stands for at this moment is uh, the U.S. military. I mean, that they, they really need to be supported. Um, and I, I think that uh, there needs to be a, a lot of clarity into exactly what who the true enemy is. And, and I think that's why people that are behind the Space Force do understand the big picture because they they understand space is the new strategic high ground. Um, in, in a future war, the person who dominates the strategic high ground is going to dominate the planet. And so space is it. So that's that's why Space Force is uh, the, the most, you know, most people that want to join the military are all applying for Space Force. There are uh, even people from the other military services all want to be transferred, or many of them want to be transferred over to Space Force because they understand this is the future. Uh, because Space Force, it, it has to expand. As, as I said, you know, if, if you really want to defend uh, the US from a space attack, you know, whether we're talking China, Russia or aliens, you, you need to really develop uh, 300 plus squadrons of anti-gravity space vehicles uh, that are capable of defending uh, America and the planet. So so that, I think, is, is where they're going. And we have to take a one and only break. And when we come back, I want to discuss what you just said, the anti-gravity vehicles. Because for some time, I remember Dr. Fred Bell the late Dr. Fred Bell when he came here years ago and he told me that he actually witnessed 
a malfunctioning TR-3B close to his home in California, and he saw two helicopters going next to it, and he explained a lot, but I want to discuss this more when we come back. Also, Google, as you said, can pinpoint not only your home, but they can pinpoint a tile inside any room in your home, and if we have laser weapons, and I believe this has been used not only on 9-11, but in April 1995 with the Oklahoma City bombing, and even, dare I say, some of the fires in California, which showed vegetation intact around the homes, but the homes turned into dust, and people were burned to a crisp, and their teeth melted trying to escape the fire. So I think this technology has been used for, it has been used multiple times, and perhaps it could even create earthquakes. What happened in Haiti a few years ago with that earthquake? They haven't had a, an earthquake in hundreds of years. All of a sudden, we had that. But anyway, Michael, how can people buy Space Force, our Star Trek future, and all your other books? Our best place is to just go to Amazon and uh, just type in my name or, or Space Force and you should see it. Or you can visit my website, exopolitics.org, and you can order from there. And uh, you know, people can order autographed copies if they like. One more hour to go with Dr. Michael Sala. A lot of great information coming up. This is Mel Hostelrick and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS. CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.